Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to learn from each other. I thank you for the time that we have to read into your word and see how we can be able to apply the principles that Jesus himself practiced when he was reaching out to people so we can be more effective for you as missionaries, as witnesses for Christ in the world that we live in. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. When we think about evangelism, who would be the most obvious person to be our model? Obviously it would be Jesus. <laughs> you all look so surprised. Who else would it be? It would have to be Jesus. When we think about how Jesus interacted with different people, we can be able to find different principles that we can apply in our own interaction to see how we can bring people to Jesus. And so really what I'm trying to do is that you notice that this is not so much of a specific, oh, you can do this blog or you can do that. But it's rather more bringing out principles that we can be able to use in any form of evangelism, even though, as you can tell, it's primarily focusing on digital and media and all those different things. But I just want to bring principles that are general to every single thing. So hopefully it should be relatable and it should be something that you can take away with you in any form of evangelism that you do. But you notice that whenever Jesus turned up somewhere, he often drew up a crowd. And um, whether he was teaching, whether he was healing or whether he was preaching, people wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And I want to look, first of all, at the first phase. We're going to be talking about evangelism, the motive. So from yourselves, evangelism. Is evangelism important? Why is evangelism important? Feel free to just shout out. I'm sure my mic will pick up your voice. <laughs> there are a lot of people who don't know, like who've never had the opportunity to know what we know. There are a lot of people who have never had the opportunity to know what we know. Anyone else? I think I, I read somewhere that there are three really important um, to being a good Christian and that is prayer, um, evangelizing and, sorry, I've just gone off my head. Probably Bible study? <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's because it helps us to grow, actually, mm -hmm. as well. So evangelism is a fundamental factor of how we are able to grow as Christians alongside prayer and Bible studies. Anyone else? One more. Yes, Roy. Um, evangelism is part of the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. to go there. So it's a command, not an option. Exactly. So I think... I don't know how many of you work or how many of you are studying. When your lecturer tells you to do something or when your boss tells you to do something, you do it because they're in charge. <laughs> and so when Jesus, who is in charge of everything, tells you to go, that makes it important just simply because he said it. But here, I want us to look at another reason why evangelism is important. And we're going to be drawing primarily from the book of Luke, chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Luke chapter 15, we'll be looking at verse 1. And it's a passage that we know so well, we're all very familiar with. And I just want to bring out some principles that apply generally to the subject of evangelism that we might be able to use. And obviously, because our group, we're all open, um, I'll be asking somebody to read from us when you get there. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and verse 2. Um, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Thank you very much. So here Jesus is teaching. And like every other occasion, people come to hear Jesus. And in verse 1, we're told about a specific group of people who come to hear what Jesus has to say, which are the what? The tax collectors and the sinners. Now, being a sinner, everyone is a sinner. But when you have that attached to you as a title, that's an almighty condemnation. You know, it's like you are the sinners. <laughs> and then you have alongside the sinners, people who are called the tax collectors. So from this, do you get the impression that tax collectors, were they good people or were they bad people? Were they looked upon in a positive light or a negative light? Negative light. So here you have a group of people who are considered as being the outcasts of society. 
And then these outcasts of society, what do you find them doing? You find them coming to Christ. And then as they're coming to Christ, there's a different group of people in verse 2. Who do we read about in verse 2? The Pharisees and the scribes. So this is another group of people. And then what they say is that this man, what? Receives sinners and eats with them. Now the word them is important. The word them is a plural word that you use to refer to a group of people or objects that you are not a part of. So when the Pharisees says that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them, what would they say by extension? <laughs> We're not sinners. And so in their minds, they're thinking, how can this man who claims to be the Messiah, who claims to be the anointed one, be eating and drinking with them, sinners, instead of interacting with us, righteous people? And it made me think sometimes in church, are we also guilty of having that kind of interaction? Do we sometimes look down on people as them because they're different to us? Do you ever have those problems in church? Even among ourselves, sometimes in church, people who are in church, you know, there's some people who worship God or praise God in a different way. And we look at them and think, oh, you know, they're weird or they're strange just because they're different from how we are. And sometimes because the Pharisees are doing it so um, exaggeratedly, it's very easy to pick on them and say that's wrong. But then we can look at ourselves and think, actually, are we guilty of the same sin? And so when it comes to evangelism, the very, very first step is that you have to actually have open arms to people who are different to yourselves. Otherwise, you can never evangelize. But you see that Jesus, when he sees these people, how does he treat them? He says that he receives them and he eats with them. So the sinners, even though they were sinners, they loved to come to Christ because he accepted them as they were and he dignified them and he made them feel human in contrast to the Pharisees. And so here we have the very, very first thing about Jesus, that he's willing, he's a friend of the sinners. He's a friend of sinners. That gives us comfort because <laughs> we are sinners too. But then it means that anyone who's out there can come to Jesus because Jesus is willing to receive them too. Jesus was not pleased with the Pharisees, as you can imagine. They were really upset about what he said. And so Jesus himself, he wanted to respond. He couldn't let this go without saying anything. So what Jesus does, he, in response, gives a series of three parables. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep, then the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the lost son. Now we are familiar with most of them, probably maybe not the lost coin. It's kind of like just the in-between, the middle child of those parable series. We know the lost sheep and we know the lost son, but we don't often talk about the lost coin. Unfortunately, I'm not going to talk about the lost coin either today. <laughs> but I want to focus primarily on the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus tells these parables to illustrate, first of all, he's not primarily doing it to rebuke the Pharisees. He's doing it to illustrate God's attitude towards sinners in contrast to the Pharisees, and thus serve as a rebuke. So we're going to read from verse 3 and then verse 4. Someone else can pick that up for us with a loud voice so that the mic can pick you up. Verse 3 and verse 4. Luke chapter 15, verse 3 and verse 4. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after it, after the one which is lost until he finds it? Thank you very much. So here in response, Jesus begins by asking a question. What kind of a question is Jesus asking here? It's a rhetorical question. <laughs> That means that the answer is implied in the question itself. So you could put it this way. 
if you had 100 sheep and you found that 99 were safe and only one of them were lost, wouldn't any rational person leave the 99 which are safe and go out and search for the one which is lost? And so the obvious answer to Jesus' question is what? Yes, you would leave the 99 which are safe and you go out for the one which is lost until you find it. And so here Jesus is saying that the attitude that God has towards sinners is that he's not willing that even one should be lost, but how many should come to repentance? All of them. And so I want you to imagine this shepherd with your sanctified imaginations. You know, he's in the wilderness and then he's counting his sheep and he realizes that one is missing. They're only 99. He started the day with 100. And so what does he do? He leaves every single thing that he has and then he goes out and tries to desperately retrace his steps. And he's seeking into every single valley, every single hill, every single cave that he has been, looking for this one little sheep until he finds it. For this shepherd, failure is not an option. He wants to search and keep on searching until he finds it. And that's how Jesus relates with us. He comes to search for us. And so for Jesus, it was natural to receive sinners because that was the purpose of why he came. How can he not receive the sinners when he's looking for them? <laughs> but the Pharisees, they didn't understand this, even though they thought they were godly. They were actually being very ungodly. For Jesus, we see that evangelism was not the number one option. It was not the number one item on his agenda. Evangelism was the agenda. And every single thing that Jesus did, everything that he said revolved around this one singular objective of how he can bring people into a saving relationship with himself. When we think about our own attitude, how does evangelism rate on our own agendas? Is it the number one priority? Or is it something that we do when we have time? Is it something that we make time for? Or do we do it when we're free? For Jesus, nothing else matters. But what have we done to reach out to people? Yesterday, it was quite exciting because we all went out. <laughs> How did you find that experience? It was good. Which, which part of what programs we're having? Because we're having four different ones. You were on the bookstore. How did you find the bookstore experience? Would you like to share a little bit? No. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good. <laughs> I, I had one conversation, a very good conversation. And yeah, I spread the books. It was nice. Mm -hmm. So we had the bookstore evangelism. Did anyone do anything different to bookstore? Yeah, I was in music. You were in the music? Yeah, it was funny because people like to stop and film and... Mm -hmm. There were some people who came and sing with us as well. Yeah. And I mean, it's an amazing feeling when you go to town and then you're standing there singing, Oh, How I Love Jesus. And people who are walking by are stopping and say, Can you sing this song for me, please? And then they join you in singing it and take pictures with you and then they walk away. Those were some of the experiences that we were having. And you know, like the disciples, when Jesus sent them out two by two, they come back and they have so much joy because they've seen what it means for other people to receive the gospel for the first time. So we have to understand that as well as it is to have all these sermons, which are so wonderful, what about giving those same sermons to people who have never heard it before? And so we see that Jesus, he longs to reach sinners because that's his heart's need. And then he goes on to say, in verse, going back to the parable of Luke chapter 15, he goes out to this shepherd, goes out and he looks for that one lost sheep until he finds it. What happens when he finds it? In verse 5, he says, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders doing what? Rejoicing. Verse 6, and when he comes home, 
he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, What? Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. How does evangelism make God feel? It brings joy to his heart. We were hearing before in the sermon by Brother Sebastian Braxton about Genesis chapter 3. I want you to trace your mind back to the moment when God was watching, looking down on earth, and he sees Eve stretch out her hand and pluck that fruit. And then he sees her eat it and give to her husband to also eat. What do you think was going through the mind of God at that moment? Do you think that God was hurt? Or do you just think, I saw this coming, it doesn't matter, I've already got a backup plan? (laughs) He would have been hurt. And so that moment would have broken the heart of God, even though he sees it coming, he's still able to experience that pain and that emotion. And because of the pain that he experienced when he lost us, when we come back to him, he experiences the reverse, he experiences joy. So the joy that God feels when someone is baptized is just as real as the pain he felt when he lost us in the first place. And it teaches us that regardless of where we might find ourselves, Jesus is willing to stretch out and reach out to us also. I want us to notice something briefly in verse 5. When he finds the sheep, what does he do? Does he drive it home? Does it chase it home and say, why were you lost? How does he do? He puts it on his shoulders. The sheep doesn't even have to walk home. <laughs> See, when it was lost, it has to walk around on its own. When it was, sorry, when it wasn't lost, it has to walk around on its own. But then when it's lost, he puts it on his shoulders. He makes the way back home as easy as possible. Our churches, are they set up to make it easy for people who are non-Christians to come into the fellowship? Jesus wants it to be so easy for someone who was lost to become found. And sometimes the problem that Jesus has <laughs> is that it's the people in church, the ones who consider themselves not to be sinners, who are actually the stumbling block for people to come to Jesus when Jesus is reaching out for them. And I pray that we might not be among that number of the Pharisees and the scribes who look down on people who are different to ourselves. He doesn't just rejoice on his own, he rejoices with everyone else. How many of us are baptized? How many of you remember the day you were baptized? How many of you would describe the day you were baptized as probably one of, or if not the happiest day of your life? Mm. <laughs> Everyone would. In verse 6, it says, I say to you that likewise there will be how much more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. It's an amazing thought to think that as happy as you were when you were baptized, <laughs> Jesus was happier. And he's not even the one who's being saved. See, Jesus is more interested in our salvation than sometimes we ourselves are interested in being saved. So there's never a reason not to come to Christ because whenever we come to him, he's willing to receive us with open arms. But beyond this, this parable also sought to illustrate something deeper than just God's attitude towards individual sinners. Here it says on the quote, it says, by the lost sheep, Christ represents the one world that has apostatized. Cast your mind back to Genesis chapter 3. We know from books like Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, that God has created more than one world. And this idea is very, very clear in the spirit of prophecy too. So you could think of it that in that mindset, in that moment, in that instance that Adam and Eve fell, God had only lost one of 99 worlds, quote, unquote. And he could have looked at it and just said, you know what, I've lost this one world, 
but I still have 99. He could have done that, couldn't he? But then according to Jesus' own logic in the first verse and the second verse, it was impossible for God to say, I've lost this one and I'm not going to go out after that one and leave the ones which are safe. And so God sends his own son to leave every single thing that he had and to come and look after this one lost sheep, our little planet, which is like the tiny little dot in space. It becomes the one thing around which God's mind revolves for the last 6,000 years. And that's an almighty thought. For the last 6,000 years, God's mind has been focusing on nothing else than our salvation. But while we are on God's mind, what on earth is on our minds? That's the question for us to ask ourselves as well. We see that the world, I mean, we're hearing about the appeal to go and help people in Calais. The world that we live in, is it a good place or is it a bad place? There are many distractions, there are many pleasures, but behind the veils, there's so much pain and there's so much suffering. And we're hearing from the morning devotion from Daniel Pell that one of the promises that Jesus has told us is that one day he will come back and he will receive us to himself. How many of us long for that day? When Jesus will come back again and we no longer have to go through this pain and through this suffering. And so we're motivated to evangelize so that the world can end so that we no longer have to suffer. But how many times do you think about the suffering that sin has caused the heart of God? How many of us think that we have to do evangelism so that God no longer has to suffer? See, we are only bothered by the suffering that we see. <laughs> he sees every single case of suffering and he doesn't just see it, but he feels it for the last 6,000 years. Do you think that God wants this world to end? Do you think that God wants to come back? More than we want him to come back, he wants to come back because he put an end to his own misery. And yet, do you think that God could finish the work of evangelism by himself? He could, if he wanted to. He could reach out to everyone. Could he send angels? He could send angels. And then he'll put himself out of his own misery. But instead, he chooses not to think about his own needs. And he asks us to do the work. Why? Because we have a need to serve. If I remember once reading a quote by um, C.S. Lewis, and it says that if he who in himself can lack nothing should choose to need us, it is because we have a need to be needed. And so evangelism is a part of our own growth that we would not be able to have if the angels did the work without us. We would never experience that joy of reaching out to people on the bookstores, in the music, or any of those different things that we did. And so God gives us the opportunity. We read another quote. It says in the book Education, page 164, that those who think of the result of hastening or hindering the gospel think of it in relation to themselves and to the world, but few think of its relation to God. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our Creator. Our world is a vast gathering of sin and disease-stricken people, a sin of misery that we dare not allow even our thoughts to dwell upon. Yet God feels it all. Not just sees it, but he feels it all. We think about the cross. Do you think that that was a good experience for Jesus? Did he just kind of like casually stroll through the cross? <laughs> it was a moment of suffering that no human being has ever been called upon to suffer. And when we think about how much he went through, it melts our hearts to think that he was willing to go through all of that for us. But the most important thing to realize, she goes on in Education, page 164. She says that, oh heaven, not just Christ, but all heaven suffered in Christ's agony. 
But that suffering, when did it, what is it? That suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. That means that before he came, was he suffering? Yeah. After he went back to heaven, is he still suffering? Because the world is not yet what he wanted to be. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain from which from its very inception sin has brought to the heart of God. And so Jesus wants this work of evangelism to progress because it puts a need in his own heart to be fulfilled. In order to destroy sin and its result, he gave his best beloved and he has put it in whose power? Our power through cooperation with him to bring this sin of misery to an end. And then he says what? This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a what? Witness to all nations and then the end will come. So if you say that you want Jesus to come again, Jesus says, what do you have to do? <laughs> this gospel has to be witnessed and then the end will come. So God is longing for that day when he can come and he's just waiting for us to be willing to go. <laughs> God's attitude towards sinners, it was so different to the Pharisees' attitude. And so for now, we're going to take a little bit of a break, probably just do discussions among ourselves, and then just think about the following questions for about 10 minutes or so. The first one, we are the sinners. We are the lost sheep. When you think about Luke chapter 15, how does it influence how you perceive the love that God has shown towards you personally? The second question is, in John chapter 10, Jesus says that he has other sheep which are not of this fold. How should this influence your attitude toward those who are different from yourself? And then the final thing, seeking the lost. What does this have, what opinion, what effect does this have on your perception of evangelism? So if you can just sort of like, I think we could maybe just make one big group and then just share different discussions. So this is a chance for you to talk and me to listen and learn as well. But if you think about the first verse, we being the lost sheep, how does that impact your own relationship with God or your own perception of God's love? Does it have any effect? I, I think I'm, I'm amazed, really, uh, because you know, knowing that God is the king of the universe and um, you know, in the whole span of things, I am just like a blip. <laughs> In you know, in reality, and I just, um, I think I'm just humbled by, you know, how he would come down to this earth to die for somebody like me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful and humbled by. It's a humbling thing that Jesus should seek to die for people like ourselves, um, and it makes us just realize, yes, Christoph. Everyone's thinking because you know, like years back. I didn't used to see like myself as a, a lost sheep. Yeah. Because I was born in the church, so like the lost they are like the people who are like outside, not me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then I, I haven't like applied this idea of lost sheep to myself. Because just years back when I like started saying that to be lost doesn't mean to be outside from the church or inside of the church. Mm-hmm. But if you are doing the God's will, we all were lost as you said. Yeah, then I think it just changed our perspective and how like we see people. Exactly. Because we are in the same position there's no difference between us and like people outside of church i mean that's a very very good point the pharisees and the scribes were they in church they were the leaders of the church (laughs) but were they in the fold of god no they were not the sheep that were safe as they thought they were safe (laughs) they were actually lost but they didn't realize it 
they didn't see the need. You know, all the other sinners, they, they knew that they needed a savior. Yeah. But the, the, the Pharisees, who were supposed to be leading them to God, didn't see that they had a need. And, you know, it's like what brother said, you know, they thought that because they were the leaders, they, mm -hmm. they weren't the, the, the people that, you know, God. Exactly. And I think it just, it's a part of the Christian experience that even though we're in church, we don't have to then pretend that we're perfect. We can still come to Christ acknowledging that we have a need. That's why we're in church. You know, people often talk about church being a hospital. So you're there to be treated, but you know the condition and you know the physician. Therefore, where else could you go but to come to church? So we can be ourselves with all our faults and then Jesus can make us better again. Um, I think a lot of the time, sometimes we can see God wants to save all of us, which is true, but like we sometimes don't make it personal. Yeah. Um, and there's a verse in Psalms 40, which I, is one of my favourites, and it says that your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Mm -hmm. and it's crazy to think that God thinks about me personally or you personally, and we can't even count his thoughts towards us. He loves us so much. That, you know, yeah, we are that one sheep, even if no one else is was yeah. lost. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. Now, when I was younger, one of the things I used to like to do spending my time was playing with jigsaw puzzles, trying to solve jigsaw puzzles. I don't know how many of you had the same, or maybe I'm just weird, I don't know. Um, but I used to find them very, very interesting. And you know, jigsaw puzzles, they come in different shapes and sizes. So when you're younger, you have like that one with four pieces. <laughs> and, you know, you've got like a 25% chance of putting it in the right place. And then they get bigger and bigger as obviously you go older. And you know when you start to have those pieces which have like a thousand pieces, where do you usually start when you're trying to solve it? The corners, the corners because they're obvious. You only have four of them and then you do the edges because they're also obvious. But then there are those little bits in the middle that you don't always necessarily know where to go until something else puts it in its place. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when we look at this world, even when we look at church, there are those people who appear like the corners, you know, the pastors, the head elders, they're very, very easily distinguishable. And then sometimes we can see ourselves as being the one little piece in the middle that might just be insignificant. You're not holding anything up. But the point of this is, if you had a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and you lost one and you had 999 pieces and you put it together and you could look at it, you could hang it on the wall and every single day you see this gap <laughs> where that one piece is supposed to go, would you be happy with that puzzle? No. You can't. And you can imagine that puzzle as being like the heart of God. Each and every one of us, we have a place in God's heart. Even Lucifer has a place in the heart of God. But unfortunately, that hole will never be filled again. And that's what breaks the heart of God. So each and every one of us, we matter to the Creator, even if we don't matter to anyone else. So that's why Steps to Christ, page 100, says that the relation between God and each soul is as distinct and as full as if there was not another soul upon the earth to share his watch care as if there was not another soul for whom he sent his own son, that Jesus would have just come to die just for you because that picture was just incomplete. <laughs> um, Roy? Um, when it comes to the church, uh, I think this is where the parable of the lost coin mm -hmm. that is <laughs> that um, we are in the church, just like the lost coin, it was in the house, mm -hmm. inside the house, but it was lost inside the house. Mm -hmm. That we may be in the church while we are lost. Mm -hmm. Meaning to say, uh, and this coin did not know that it was lost, even if it was in the house. Mm -hmm. So, meaning we may be in the church and yet lost, and we won't recognize that we are lost because we have a comfort that we are in the church. 
but we thank Jesus because it says that the woman had to sweep the house yeah. so that um, we may repent while we're still alive. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I was going to say, like, I remember like, I went to um, Abadaran last summer and it's got like lots of hills and lots of mountains and lots of sheep and swales. And there was like this one sheep at the edge of the cliff. And it was there and we're like, oh my days, that sheep is going to fall off. But it was really calm. It was just like going away chewing the grass. And we're like, can't it see that it's on the edge of the cliff? And like, I just remember like how sheep are so dozy that like even like when the sheep was lost, I'm sure it didn't recognize it was lost. It just carried on eating the grass. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how we can be sometimes we're in church and we're calmly sitting there thinking we're okay. But really there's so much da- da- danger attacking us and we don't even know what's going on. And it's only because God loves us so much that he comes and seeks us. Yeah. That's the only reason we can be saved. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how like in those parables, um, the lost coin, the lost son, and the lost sheep, Jesus paints all the pictures of the people that he's addressing. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying, the coin doesn't know it's lost. Say with the Pharisees. And in the last parable, the lost son recognizes he's lost, but the older brother doesn't. And so you have that picture of, again, like the Pharisees and the disciples, the different people. And Jesus is just drawing that out and almost saying, who are you in this story? Yeah. And it's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Who are we? Are we a lost sheep? Are we a brother, the, the lost son who's gone away and is coming back? Or are we the older brother who doesn't even know he's lost? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good question to ask. Yeah. Just wanted to add what she's saying. Um, this time when we read the Bible, we're always applying it away from ourselves. Um, instead of trying to find, you know, in what's in it that can apply to our lives, mm-hmm. that's a really dangerous thing in the context of you know applying it to other people. I mean, you know. Yeah, exactly. And that leads us on nicely that sometimes we can be lost without realizing that we are actually lost. Mm-hmm. There are people who are in the world that don't realize that there is actually a home for them to be going to. So Jesus says, I think it's John chapter ten. He says that he's a good shepherd. And then he says, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. But one day he'll bring them all together and make one flock. How should we relate with those people who are not of this fold, but they're still his sheep? When someone who is different to us comes into church, how should we respond? Or have you ever had an experience, positive or negative, where someone comes in and they're very well received or maybe not so well received? It's happened often in church. Because we have a big church and we don't always see new people. Yeah. But I think we have to we have to take care of it because we are the same. Mm-hmm. We just have different background and different uh, education, but God is the same for all of us. He's, he will react for him too. He, he came to her for him too. Yeah. So I have to respect him. I have to, even if you have different point of view, I have to show him that maybe mine is maybe the Bible yeah. is the right thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe we don't see the right stuff, but we have to to share and explain. We don't have to be rude or just uh, no. We we have a lot of Muslim people in um, in France. It's like a big part of uh, France, and sometimes we're like no, maybe they're gonna get us a bit arrested. But we don't have to feel that to to show them that we're afraid. We don't have to be afraid of them. Yeah. They're, they're brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. So, we have to maybe uh, learn uh, and understand what's God's love. Yeah. To give it to other people. Mm-hmm. And which is why really sometimes I've been thinking, when we're speaking about evangelism, why start talking about how God wants to save us personally? Because unless we realize how God has met our needs and what impact that has had on us, 
we can never fully appreciate what that impact would have on somebody else who doesn't yet know about God's love. And so when we see ourselves as these sheep who maybe are or were lost, we're able to relate to people who are still lost now because we're coming from the same boat. Um, and I think that probably answers the same thing. How does it affect our opinion towards evangelism? It's basically reclaiming people who, were in, who are in the position that we once were in, even though sometimes we didn't realize that we were in that position. And really that sort of completes the first phase of our seminar, Evangelism the Motive. We see that God's heart is tied up into the work of saving sinners because he has been hurt since he lost us in the first place. We see that we are the sheep individually and that we have a place in God's heart that he will be able and willing to look for us even if there was no one else who needed to be saved because that shepherd went out for just that one lost sheep. And then we see that there are people who are different from ourselves but they're still sheep as well. And Jesus wants to bring every single person as he can, as much as he can, into the same fold. And that we should not be like the Pharisees who are actually becoming the stumbling block of someone who wants to come and eat and be received by Jesus. So that's the first stage. I don't know if anyone has any kind of questions or any comments before we go into the second stage. Yes. On sheep that are not of this fold, um, there is a perception that at times we may have about people who go to other denominations. Yeah. And when it comes to evangelism, we feel like, no, these are Pentecostals, they more like pray in tongues, or these are Catholics, and this is more like the beast, and, you know, all, 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 all the other ideas that we have. Like mm -hmm. Jesus is saying, I have other sheep which are not of this form. Yeah. So even if they are in various denominations, some of them, they live to all the truth that they know. The fact that they don't yet know the Sabbath truth or some other truth mm -hmm. does not mean that they don't believe or obey God. Mm -hmm. So when you read last day events, it actually says there are many other people who are in other denominations that when the Sunday law shall be declared, they shall come out of those denominations and come and join the Adventist rank. And there are many in the Adventist rank who shall go, in fact, who shall go out of the church. So, so what does it mean? It means um, when we are relating to other people from other denominations, fine, we have different doctrines and we know that they are lost in this regard, fine. But our attitude towards evangelism, we should be knowing that they are the sheep, but they are not of this fold, and we should be praying for them and probably studying with them so that they can join the mm -hmm. correct doctrine. Where is that verse again? Sorry, just remind the other sheep. I believe it's John chapter 10, verse 16. Let me just double check for you. Okay. It's in John chapter... When you find, us, when you find it, let us know. <laughs> let us know. Um, moving on from this related topic, we read in Matthew about how... Well, we read a quote that quoted Matthew chapter 24. And then he had that very famous verse that we all know and love so well. And it says... First of all, he said that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in how much of the world? The whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. First of all, I want us to notice a few points. The verse starts by saying what? This gospel. What does the word this gospel mean? It says that there is this gospel. The word this is identifying a very specific gospel. Is there only one version of the gospel in the world today? 
if there was only one gospel, there would only be one church. <laughs> but there are many different churches because there are many different understandings of what it means to have the gospel. But here Jesus says that this gospel. What is this gospel? The specific gospel that we are looking for is the one that is able to bring about what? The end of the world. The three angels' messages, when we read in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 to verse 7, 12, and all those different verses in between, we see that when those three angels' messages are proclaimed, in verse 13 and verse 14, we have the harvesting, Christ coming to harvest the harvest, which is now ripe. And so those three angels' messages inculcate what we would say is the everlasting gospel. That's why Revelation 14, 6 says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. It's everlasting because it's never changed. So therefore, that everlasting gospel has to be this gospel because it was the gospel when Jesus was there and it's the gospel now and it was the gospel before Jesus came. We believe that it is our duty as Adventists to preach this everlasting gospel. And so as Adventists, we should have a very, very peculiar responsibility to share this gospel to other people. Does it really matter the fact that other Christians are evangelizing the world and we can just say, okay, you know what, all the Methodists can reach out to the gospel that they have, would that bring about the end? Without being exclusive or anything like that. But if Jesus says that this gospel, and we're saying that that gospel is the three angels' messages, that literally means that every single person on earth has to hear a component of the three angels' messages in some way, shape, or form before the end can come. But then who has that message? If we sit on the message <laughs> and then we're saying, oh, how I love Jesus, we're marching to Zion, and yet we are waiting for Jesus to come and he's waiting for us to move. <laughs> we're waiting for Jesus to come and receive us where we are and he's asking us to go ye therefore to where the people who need to actually hear the messages are. And so sometimes I think it's very easy to become content in having those revelation seminars, prophecy seminars, to people who've heard them since they were like two years old. And then it's very, very happy because we all get revived. But unless we're bringing people who've never heard it before, there's not really any progress that's being made. Yes, it's important to retain those who are already in the church. But then unless we're actually spreading the gospel to people who've never heard it before, we're not gaining any ground. Sometimes we think, how many of you have ever felt or maybe you've ever heard someone say, no one wants to know about the gospel? Have you ever had that thought? I've had that thought. Well, you know, you go knocking on doors and then everyone just says, no, 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 no. You get the impression that no one wants to know. <laughs> when we went to evangelism yesterday, one of the most interesting things that happened is that we had, to, we had a, a lot of material. We had tracts, we had books. And then halfway through the day, we realized that the books that we had were no longer going to be enough. So we had to come back and get another box full of books and tracts and DVDs to take back to Town Square and Jubilee Square where we're witnessing because the one that we had had been finished in like an hour or so. And so we're here thinking, okay, we need to go evangelism. Oh, no, no, no one wants to know. But then the one time that we do go, we don't have enough material. So can we really say that no one wants to know the gospel? Or is it really that people want to know, but we're not always willing to give them what they're asking for? Here he tells us, um, same, so you notice that most of these quotes are taken from the book Education, page 163 and 164. It says that millions upon millions have never so much as heard of God or his love revealed in Christ. And then it says, it is their what? 
it is their right. What does that mean? It means that they're entitled to hearing the gospel, to receive this knowledge. And it rests with, it rests with who? Us. Who is us? We who have this gospel are the ones upon whom the responsibility rests to meet their right. And when it says that it rests with us who have the knowledge with our children to whom we may impart to answer their what? Cry. Have you ever thought that there are people out there who are actually crying out for the gospel? But no one is there to share because we think no one wants to know. <laughs> and yet there are millions who are hoping that someone could just usher them into the kingdom of heaven. When you think about this, the concept of sharing the gospel to all the world, does it seem like an easy task or is it a difficult task? Why would you say the task is difficult? <laughs> so you, also, you notice that I often ask follow-up questions. So when you say something, just, respond, just be ready for me to, say, to ask something in return. I think sometimes because um, salvation can often be a long process. Yeah. Um, particularly when we look at I mean, I mean, membership, not just across the world, but particularly in like the, the trans-European part of where we are now, the division that we're in. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at places like Finland or Iceland, you know, the gospel hasn't really made much headway there, Tradi like traditionally and within the Adventist church. And sometimes we see salvation is a very long process and we expect it to happen maybe like it does across the other side of the world in Africa, where you have a campaign and 100 people get baptized and it's all great and it grows. And yeah. You know, we have an evangelistic meeting here and we're like, one person came to church <laughs> afterwards. Put it in the messenger. Yeah. <laughs> so I think sometimes that's why it can seem difficult. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because we don't, we don't take the long view and we don't recognize what the Holy Spirit is doing in people's yeah. hearts that we don't see. Exactly. Thank you very much. And we'll touch upon that later on as well. So that's a very, very important point. We'll touch upon it. I think when we live in the Western world where you, are, you, know, you have microwave meals and where your laptop takes like half a second to boot up, <laughs> it's very, very easy to become impatient when something takes more than a night mm -hmm. to actually accomplish. But we see that even though evangelism can take sometimes even years, mm -hmm. there's still a reason why it should be done even if you're not the one who actually ends up being there to see the harvest being mm -hmm. um, harvested. <laughs> it's a very, very big world. Does anyone know what the world population is at the moment? <laughs> the world population is 7.4 billion. I was looking up the statistics. I couldn't find anything that was recent for 2016. They do every single kind of like every two years, they do sort of like a census, um, the general conference. And so the latest one that I could find was from 2014. And in there, it says that the world church membership at the moment is just under 18.5 million. So there are 18.5 million Adventists. And between ourselves, we have the task of taking the gospel to how many people? 7.4 billion people. If you do the math, that's basically a ratio of 1 to 400 for every single Adventist in the world. but they're not necessarily exactly <laughs> so this 18 and a half million is just the ones who are on the books not necessarily the ones who are actually doing evangelism in the first place now i don't think i actually even have 400 friends <laughs> to begin with but it's basically a massive massive ratio and when we look at it it can be like how on earth are we going to be reaching 400 people plus each for jesus and it can seem really daunting No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can interject as long as you speak loudly so that the mic can pick okay. it up. Um, I had an experience recently uh, which kind of relates to this. And I was uh, in work and I've been praying for opportunities to reach my colleagues. And um, 
uh, this guy picks up this book and he's my he's a Welsh colleague and he's opposite me and he started to read from it. He was like, oh, uh, may the God of all hope um, like bring mercy and grace to you as Christ Jesus. And I was like, okay, what's going on? Like, why, why is he reading this? And somebody else was like, okay, that, that's nice. Thanks, Nathan. And then he said something else and he was like, um, come all to unto me, you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And I was like, Nathan, where are you getting this from? <laughs> so I was like, what's the book? And he turned it round and um, it was um, like mind healing or something, but it was one of those ones that the SEC give out. So, okay. Uh, by Sharon Black McDonald. Yes, um, those, those little books, booklets, pocket-sized, yeah. And I was like, my church makes those. <laughs> and he was like, oh, that's interesting. We've got a whole set in the cupboard. Um, it's like a book that um, I read from every now and again. I've got it in my desk. And I was like, what you know and you wonder where it came from but it just reminded me that somebody else's act of faithfulness had mm-hmm. allowed a conversation for me to open yeah so like you were saying yeah i don't know 400 people mm-hmm. but somebody else was faithful and that act that they did is going to matter into eternity because it actually made my um conversation with my colleague exactly able to open it's like a ripple so we might not know 400 people but we might sow 400 Exactly. And sometimes why it's difficult is because, like you've just said, we count success by the fruit that comes at the end, mm-hmm. not by the faithfulness in which we plant the seeds. Mm-hmm. So Jesus says, go ye therefore, that's our marching orders, and baptize people who want to be baptized. But sometimes they're not ready to be baptized, but we still have to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really a massive, massive statistic. But I believe that we can draw some inspiration from the apostles and from our pioneers that can actually show that even though, yes, 18.5 million against 7.4 seems like a really, really large number, we can actually see that with God all things are possible. We're going to begin. You remember the story in Acts chapter 2 when the disciples were sitting in the upper room. How many people were in the upper room? 120. Before Acts chapter 2, if you go to Acts chapter 1 verse 8, could someone just read it for us, please? Project your voice. But don't let that put you off. <laughs> Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But he shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and he shall be witness unto me, unto me both in Jerusalem and all in all Judea, mm-hmm. and in Samaria, and under the utmost part of the earth. Thank you very much. I would imagine that these were the, well, these were, the parting words of Jesus, part of the conversation that he had with them just before he was taken away. And the last thing that he does is that he charges them with this responsibility. And I imagine that these 120 people when they're sitting in the upper room, they would have been excited as well as daunted (laughs) by the words that Jesus left them with. On one hand, he says that you shall be witnesses for me to where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he's asking them to do something that seems to be impossible through human efforts alone. And then on the other hand, he says that you shall receive what? Power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So he's offering something that is beyond human power alone. So that's like exciting to see what does God mean you shall receive power. But then you're thinking, how are we going to reach the whole world? (laughs) Some have said that at this point in time, the Roman Empire, which for them was the then known world, Christopher Columbus had not yet, you know, gone on his adventure. Um, so they were part of the world that they didn't, know, they didn't even know existed. But the Roman Empire, it's estimated that at this point in time, there were 180 million people living in the empire. 
So these people in the upper room, 120 of them, they have the responsibility of reaching at least 180 million people. When you do the math, that comes out to a ratio of about one and a half million non-Christians for every Christian in that room. So we look at our statistic, one to 400. They had one to one and a half million. How did that go? Were they successful or was it a total failure? When you look at these individuals, what methods did they actually have at their disposal? Apart from coming to church and preaching every single day and traveling for a week to go to Jerusalem and preaching there and then another month to go to Spain and preach there, the only method, the only sort of like technology that they had at their disposal was what? Paper <laughs> and pen, writing letters. That's, that was the most advanced technology that they had. And so Paul... <laughs> That's why we have so many letters from him, because that's, that was the main tool. And it took weeks, sometimes even months, for his message to go there. But then when it got there, it was read, they would have been inspired, and then they share, and then it spreads. And that one little seed, like those booklets, it spreads and it spreads, and then you have no idea where it's going to end. And then now, because of their letters, only letters, and their preaching, we actually have the gospel as well. And we've been able to hear that gospel. In one of his letters, Paul was writing to the people in Corinth, in Colossians, Colossae. And he says, in the middle of the sentence, in the middle of the passage, he says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through, his, through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. But it's the next part of that phrase that interests me. He says that if indeed you continue in the what? faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the what hope of the gospel which you have heard and then it says which was preached to what every creature under the sun every creature under heaven they managed to spread the gospel <laughs> to as many people as were in their vicinity such that even though people were not christians had they heard about the gospel they heard about it so these 120 managed to reach one and a half million people each. How was that possible? Through pen and paper and just their voices. Because the point is that it's not so much the methods that you have, but it's about the Holy Spirit who makes all things possible. And so sometimes we are uh, frustrated and we are discouraged by the task of the, the, the size of the task that stands before us. And then we think, actually, there's no way we can do it. So then we never try. But sometimes we accomplish so little because we try so little. If you fast forward the times <clears throat> to our pioneers, when they were around, how many of them were there after the Great Disappointment? They were only around 50 to 100, if not less. What method did they have at their disposal? One of them is in that picture. Can you identify? Preaching. There's another second one. Does that look familiar? They had the charts where they would have the different statue of Daniel chapter 2 there. Daniel chapter 7 with the animals there. That was technology for them. They were making it more exciting <laughs> by using posters and charts to preach the gospel. Sometimes they'll get like these lions which are made out of like paper mache mm -hmm. to attract attention. But that was technology. See, they were moving away from the apostles who only had letters and episodes. And they were thinking, what can we do to make the gospel more relevant to the age that we're living in? And so William Miller would preach from the Bible, but then they had all these charts to attract people's attention and to make the gospel more accessible. 
they were ever looking to develop new methods to reach people. Then the printing press came into play. They started to print magazines, they started to print publications on very different topics from health, prophecy, education, all of these different things to meet different kinds of people. And from that slideshow, you can see how it's progressed from you know, black and white, <laughs> yellow and black, to having full color things that are able to be spread. And now we've gone where? Digital. Now you can send things instantly. You no longer have to send someone to carry a piece of paper for two months before they get your letter. <laughs> you can do things instantly. When our pioneers saw the progress of the world and how the world was changing, they were thinking, how can we take advantage of these things for the purpose of the gospel? They were not just simply saying, Paul wrote letters, therefore we're going to write letters too. They were thinking, what do we have that Paul does not have? And they made the most use of that. What do we now have that our pioneers do not have, did not have? <laughs> and how are we using that? Is it possible to use social media to evangelize to people? Some people don't believe that we should even be on social media. <clears throat> but then there were people who thought that the radio was an instrument of the devil <laughs> at one point. And now we have Adventist Christian radio networks just churning out baptisms by the thousands each and every year. Because sometimes we're often, we're often not very pro-change. When something new comes about, it takes time, especially for Christianity, for us to be able to actually see, yes, there are bad things, but there's actually something positive. You know, sometimes when we used to have our camp meetings, we have a lot of their sermons because, like, for example, the 1889 camp meeting, it was being recorded in the daily newspapers. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> so when A.T. Jones would preach, there was a journalist who was typescribing his sermon, and then they would print it the next day for people who were not able to attend. The adverts for the camp meeting were actually put in the newspapers. But in the newspapers, there were things that were not very, very godly. But then that didn't stop them from putting something godly in the midst of where there was nothing good at all. When Ellen White died, her death was publicized in the newspaper. I haven't got the um, clip of it there as well. But they were talking about, you know, he, you know, he is the death of another Christian you know, leader and all those different things. And then they were talking about, you know, her and her believers. So you know that there were, it wasn't an Adventist who was writing it. And yet she was so significant in society. And she had such a relationship with these people who had media and all these different things that when she died, her death was actually noteworthy. And it was actually put in the newspaper, not just as an obituary, but as some kind of headline news. If the apostles were alive today, would they use social media to reach people? Would they at least try? In Britain, we have a population of just under 65 million. 60 of those, 60 of those 65 are active internet users. That's like 92% of the British population. So that, that must include some grandmothers as well. And, you know, <laughs> everyone is just like on this social media hype. But then of those 38 million people out of the 65 actually use social media actively, that's 52% of the people that we're trying to reach. Would Jesus <laughs> reach people where they were? If people are there, why do we have to go out far <laughs> if the keyboard is like just there. Sometimes we neglect these avenues when we can actually be able to be more effective and sowing our seeds in more channels than we've been able to do before. Thinking back about what we've said, another chance for discussion. Now the more of us might have to have, actually we just continue to do how we're doing it, just kind of shouting out and everything like that. 
But we read from Matthew 24, verse 14. The first part of that phrase was what? Does anyone remember? How does Matthew 24, 14 start? This gospel. What did we say about that? It says that there's a specific gospel that has to be preached, which is the what? The three angels' messages. And who has the three angels' messages? We do. And then what has to happen before Jesus comes? That message has to be preached as a what? Witness. But who can preach it? Only the ones who have it. <laughs> and who has it? We do. So we cannot be singing, we're marching to Zion, <laughs> when we're not actually preaching the gospel that brings about Zion. If you look at your church experience, your personal experience, how well are we doing on this objective of sharing our distinctive message to the world? Are we doing great or not so great? Or is it a mixture? We could do more. They have big churches all over the place. Mm -hmm. Many more members than Adventists do. Yeah. <laughs> so at, at, they, at least in the UK, anyway. I thought they have much less members. No, in the really? UK, they have more members yeah. than we do. In the UK, they've got a lot, lot more members than I think in, in, in point, there's, we're in a lot more countries in the world than they are. So mm. If you take into account the whole world, we're, we're probably more successful, but in the UK, they're more successful. Have you ever had the ex like where we are? But Jehovah's Witnesses count also the children. They are baptized as Jehovah's Witnesses. They are born as Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, we don't. For example, where we are in Gosport, there's a, what, about 20 Adventists, a small group of 20 Adventists. Mm -hmm. The, the um, Jehovah's Witnesses have two services in their church and it's like full up, so they're perhaps, I don't know, three, four hundred members compared to 20 <laughs> yeah. of us yeah and, and that's all over the other way you could put it have you ever had the experience where you're at work or you're at university and then maybe you're in a conversation about spirituality and when someone asks you oh you know what church do you go to and when you said that Omer, seventh day adventist what's the response what's that <laughs> do people know about jehovah's witnesses do people know about advent methodists and catholics do people know about adventists how well are we doing sharing our distinctive message? If we don't even know that we exist, <laughs> then, no, yeah. I think a lot of the times we spend so much time trying to show people how similar we are to other Christians, we forget that we are actually different. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, we, we both did this, we both did this, but then we shy away from saying, actually, the reason why we're different from you is because of this. Yeah. And for that, that's a very, very good point, that sometimes we're trying so much to be like everyone else yeah. and to not be outcasts that we actually forget who we are. Um, a very good illustration of that. Myself, I'm not from around here, as you can tell from my surname. I was originally born in Zimbabwe, along with my sister and my other sister and my parents. Well, they had to be there, obviously. Um, <laughs> but there came a time when, as they were looking at the world that we were living in, um, the way that our political system was progressing, that they thought it might be better for us, if we moved to a different place where we would have more opportunities as the children. Like parents often do, they just want to say they want you to have more than what they had. Mm -hmm. I mean, they tell you about their sob stories about how they had to walk 24 miles to get water and all that kind of stuff. But they want us to have more opportunities than they did. And so, in thinking about places where they could move, moving country, is it an easy thing or is it a hard thing? Is it expensive? So you want to make sure that when you're moving, you actually make it worthwhile. What's interesting is that when they were thinking of a place to go, 
they did not go to the places which were neighboring Zimbabwe, where I'm from. They didn't go to South Africa or Botswana or Angola. Why not? Because those places were similar. There was nothing different about South Africa compared to Zimbabwe. It wasn't that much better. So they had to move all the way to where? England, because England was different. No one would ever move from where they currently are to somewhere else unless if it actually offered something different. Why would people come to the Adventist church if the Adventist church is exactly like what they already have? And so we actually ruin our witness by trying to be like evangelicals and Methodists because we're no longer different. So what's the motivating factor for the move? Even when you think about that, sometimes we try to make church more like the world, but the world is better at being the world than we are at being the world. <laughs> so if our goal is to make church more entertaining, is the world more entertaining? In the meaning of the world that people usually place upon it, it is. If we offer nothing different, we'll experience nothing different than what we've already been experiencing. And so it's really in our distinctiveness that we actually find the power. That's why God says you are a peculiar people. Because unless you're peculiar, you can never be a light because you just blend into your surroundings. On the flip side of that, though, I think um, that you were talking about, you know, often we try and find our common ground with evangelicals yeah. and people like that. I think actually I find in my own experience it's really helpful to emphasize that common ground. Yes. Because especially when you're talking with other people who are convinced and convicted Christians, mm -hmm. to both say, okay, we're going to come to Jesus together yeah. and then we're going to go into my specific area or your specific area specific area is actually really helpful though exactly agree at the same time you know not to kind of shy away from that but obviously not to go and being like okay yo jesus also <laughs> sabbath <laughs> yeah no definitely and we're going to touch upon that as well as we go along um but thank you very much for that as well I and mean, then the other thing that we could think of we were saying that the apostles we think that they would have used social media to reach people if you look at the way that you're currently using social media is it something that jesus could use to bring anyone to himself that's a personal question. When you think about the things that you post, do you draw anyone to Jesus? Or do you actually draw people further away from Jesus? Personal consideration. So we're going to take a break, halfway point, and we're going to have a 15-minute break so you can get some water or whatever we need to do. And then we'll come back here for the last two phases of it where we look at something different as well. But yeah, I don't know if anyone has any questions before we go off. Oh, yeah. Or any other additions, even? Um, just as a testimony of how social media works. Mm -hmm. and I don't normally go on Facebook, but I just go and see whatever my th is happening probably once in a while. Yeah. And one of the days, I just went there. I didn't know about GYC. But I saw his post of GYC. <laughs> and um, just a couple of minutes later, I made a phone call. A writer, we, he answered and said, yes, there's GYC. I didn't know there was GYC Europe. And probably before the end of the day, I had booked for GYC. So this is how social media really works. So if I am here, because you posted just, just a, you know, just a peek, right? Uh, how much more can we save people so that they come to GYC? Exactly. <laughs> it's good to see you here. <laughs> Glad you can make it. Um, but yeah, so let's just say another short word of prayer to close this section. And then we'll take 10, 15 minute break and then we'll come back again together. Um, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the love that you've shown us. We've looked at the passage of the lost sheep and how the shepherd, you, our Savior, were willing to live every single thing and go and search for that one lost sheep. It reminded us of how much you love us and how much you love those who are not yet of this fold. 
and how willing we should be to build relationships, build bridges and sympathize and empathize with people who are different to ourselves. Then we have seen this work that you have placed upon us as Adventists, that it's something that cannot be done through human effort alone. But we look at the apostles and the work that they had to do was far greater than what we are called upon to do. And they had far less resources. But your Holy Spirit made all the difference. And we're inspired because it's not really the methods that we use, but it's the Holy Spirit that can make every single thing we do effectual. So as we progress through this presentation, through this seminar, I pray that you may open up our minds so that we can be able to see how we can be more effective as a generation of youth for Jesus Christ. In His holy and precious name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.